often we, and I think probably it's our egos a little bit, and just because we have fun lifting weights, we want to get back to what we were doing. But there's a whole bunch of weights in between there that need to be lifted, and not just in strength, in strength sessions, but also in conditioning movements. So far too often what happens is that we'll do this rehab, we'll get it feeling kind of good again, and then we'll we'll jump right back to, um, we'll go from the pencil back to the 65 pound push press, because that's what the RX weight is in the workout, and you know technically you can do it. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Stronger, Healthier, Happier podcast. We are excited to have you with us and thrilled to have the opportunity to improve together. We believe that by paying close attention to our mindset, movement, sleep, stress, nutrition, and network, we can create the life we were intended to live. Here is to a stronger, healthier, happier you. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Stronger, Healthier, Happier podcast. This is episode 37. Welcome back. We are excited to be here. It's a snowy, kind of cloudy November afternoon here. Uh, we got our first dump of snow yesterday. So I don't know, I'm starting to get into the holiday spirit. It's <laughs> also very exciting <laughs> for me. I'm looking for any reason or excuse to pull out my snowblower. <laughs> and I feel like it was it was close, but it was, it was snowblower weather. It was like three or four or five inches. So yes. Um, yeah. I, there's something about, I'd be very interested to know in other families if this is not meant to be a sexist thing, but the guys will typically, well, my mom is also dying to use her snowblower. Right. Any so, given okay. Moment. So she has one. Yes. Yes. But out of the people I know, generally the guys are so excited to dig out the snowblower and use it that typically the males are using it. I'm very interested if there's other females out there who get as excited to snow blow. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. that's... A m- I think I could get ex- like excited. But I beat you to you, it too quick. Yeah, yeah, that's the first part. But also, I'm not super familiar with it. I haven't done it a lot. So I can't just go out there on my own and do it. You have to kind of like set it up. And so I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to maybe... You know what it is? I think it's just any task where you have this like extremely efficient slash fun way of doing it that isn't an incredible amount of physical labor. You can get it done. You can get a lot done in a very quick time because you have literally the perfect tool for the job. I feel like that's the satisfaction. Like, I don't know if it's actually snow blowing. It's that you're covering this massive distance. I mean, you do the whole sidewalk on our block sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just because like, you can, yes. you can. You're just walking. Yes, it's like this feeling of power because you're just like <laughs> I'm hucking this snow around. This would normally take me two hours; it's taking me twenty minutes. Right. But I also enjoy. I I don't. Yeah, I enjoy that side of it for sure. I do actually enjoy shoveling snow, though. I think there's a limit. I think after like an hour, like I think I've had enough. But I I actually enjoy going out and shoveling snow. I think it's like a form of, I've never been a, like a big meditation guy, but I think me shoveling snow is my form of like turning my brain off and it's like a little bit of exercise and you just kind of just get into it. So, um, I enjoy shoveling snow. I enjoy snow blowing and that's also my way of not complaining about Canadian winters. Cause I don't want to complain about our winters anymore. Yeah. I'm just going to enjoy them for what they are. Yes. 
We could all do that probably a little bit more. And we were talking about that this morning, um, that sometimes we, as just as society, I think we complain about things, but they're actually things that we enjoy. We've just learned to be, it's just kind of fun or like, not fun, but we Habits? complain, yeah, out of habit to kind of go along with everyone else that's complaining when meanwhile, I mean, we all know what's coming. We know what winter is. We still live here. So, I mean, we're not, it's not that bad. Otherwise we wouldn't live here anymore. Yeah, we should be so prepared. <laughs> like, I mean, it happened last winter and the winter before and the winter before in the last 30, 40, 80 winters, however long you've been alive where we get lots of snow and yeah. then it's not so bad for a bit. And we're going to get this minus 40 weather coming either in December, or January, like yeah. it's, it's coming. We might as well just, just be ready for it. So when it comes, we're like, oh yeah, like this, this is normal. It feels yeah. like we're all like a little bit like shocked when it arrives and then we like to chat about, but yeah, in reality, it's, it's not. I feel like bad. it's almost used as a way of connecting with people, you know, like the, just the complaining where we, we could learn Even if it's to not just complaining, connect we always have, positive. Yeah. We can always, when we've got nothing to chat about, we chat about the weather, I suppose. Yeah. Um, all right. What's new, Jen? Well, we just got back today. We spent the night in Clear Lake last night at a friend's cottage and it was absolutely wonderful. Um, the lake house, if anyone's interested, the lake house is open all year round out there. So we had, yeah, a nice dinner and it was just, it was just nice to get away. I have, I find it very hard to a hundred percent officially relax when I'm at home because there's always something I can putter with or clean or take care of or pull out my laptop. So, um, I thoroughly enjoyed just leaving the house and, um, yeah. just relaxing. We yeah. watched a DVD, a DVD. It yes. was epic. True lies <laughs> on DVD. I love true lies. Yeah. Um, I think we've realized either lately or a long time ago that part of our like stress management plan is like unplugging or disconnecting and we love our house and we love our job and we love our lives here, but it is, it is a completely different feeling when you're just not in your own home mm-hmm. drinking coffee or not in your own home watching a DVD. It, it is a different feeling and I feel like it, it's definitely like a reset button for us. I think it was like last summer we were just sitting in a friend's hot tub and it just felt like we were on vacation, even though it was only five, 10 minutes away. But, um, I think we've, yeah, just kind of taken note of that to make more of an effort. To take little resets. Yes. To disconnect or unplug by mm-hmm. these like super, super mini vacations. Cause it was only 24 hours, but it was a ton of fun and felt like way different, I guess, than sitting on our own couch watching true lies on Netflix for some reason it was just a lot more fun but which also DVDs and like just not even being able to log into Netflix Netflix sometimes I just I can't even pick something there's just so much going on you just were looking through hey don't you like that true lies movie yes that's the one (laughs) let's watch that (laughs) yeah it's almost better to have less options or you just you pick it and go yeah yeah I miss I miss the days of blockbuster where being oh, in blockbuster, blockbuster was fun and you walk around, but like you pick a movie, yeah. you go home. And if that movie sucks, you still watch it. Yeah. Like you, it's too late. It's already in and it's going. Yeah. And you don't have another one. So yeah, I don't, I don't think our brains do well with more choice. No. I think we typically just are like less happy the more choices we have because we're always like thinking there's like 
greener pastures yes. around the corner. Yeah. yeah, we've probably all done it too. We're like 20 minutes into a movie or show and then we just stop it and go back to Netflix and like look for something because there, there could be something better. But when you've rented a VHS, took you 10, 15 minutes to drive there, took you 20 minutes to pick it out, you drive home and it's in. There's no going back. Yeah. The blockbuster effect is what we need more of, I think, rather than the Netflix effect. Yes. All right, moving on. Um, let's talk about, yeah, maybe something a bit new we're going to introduce to our podcast because we're trying to introduce it more into our lives and more into the culture of our gym, and that is recognizing bright spots. So when we when we meet with people at our gym, be it uh, goal-setting sessions or nutrition consultations or nutrition follow-up meetings, and now we're trying to get people in our classes to start with by just recognizing bright spots in your life because I think, well, I don't think I know. We all should know this. When we really, really work hard to recognize like lots of bright spots in our life, we realize there is lots to be grateful for rather than letting the not so great things in our life kind of consume us. Yeah, it's been a really fun it started with just a couple of bright spots and the board is filling up more and more um, every day. And I like I personally just love reading them. I've read all of them that are up there. And yeah, some of them are really like most of them are very small things. And I think that's the effect that you read it. And you're like, oh, yeah, hey, I did that, too. Or like there's another one in my life. I never thought of that as like a bright spot. Um, we also get used to like these things in our life that are normal. We start to like classify them as normal and we kind of forget about them. But when you hunt for them, you start to realize like, oh yeah, like that is pretty amazing. Whether it's something small inside the gym or outside the gym or yeah, in your in your home life, I, I think it's important to start celebrating like tiny victories mm-hmm. rather than always waiting for giant things to happen because yeah. maybe these giant victories only come once a year. So like we're we're waiting and waiting when really every day we could like pick out something little to be, yeah, just to be proud of actually too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it does take practice because we did this at a coach's meeting probably about six weeks ago um, or so. And you kind of asked me, okay, like what's your bright spot going to be? And it took me, like I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, it's like what, what, almost, des- what deserves the yes, title exactly. of bright spot in my life? Like what did I do that well? And then my head's going through. We're almost like, too, how can I justify that as a bright spot? Yeah, we're almost too critical of ourselves. We're like, well, that's not that's not, not good not enough that to good, right? yeah. put on the chalkboard. Like, yeah, you know, it was only a a two hundred pound back squat, and the guy beside me got three hundred. Like we're so quick to like compare and almost yeah put down ourselves to not allow it to be a bright spot. And I think, yeah, like I think, and I'm not, this isn't just you, it's me too. We almost get frozen and be like, well, I'm not going to say this because it wasn't quite good enough. But, or someone's doing it better than me. So how can that be? Yeah. yeah. But rather than just any tiny step forward, any tiny victory, anything that's going well should be celebrated and we should be teach ourselves to be proud of all those little things. And I, and I think we're guilty of it, but we're getting better. Mm-hmm. But I'm working hard with people in the gym because I'll be like, hey, Susie, great job today. You know, you crushed that workout. And people are very typical to respond like, yeah, but I only use 25, right? They're very quick to like diminish their own hard work. Yeah. 
And I think we should do a better job. Be like, yeah, I did kick ass today. Thanks for noticing. Like, I don't know why we can't just do that. And I think mm-hmm. ourselves included, but we need to be like, like better at receiving that praise or recognizing mm-hmm. our own efforts. So I'm, I'm working hard when I, when I hear it now, I'm like stopping people. I'm saying, don't, don't say that. Yeah. You could just say thank well, it's you. Not, it's not necessarily outcome based. They're not saying, hey, you crushed it because of your score or because of your time. And then that's why you're saying, well, yeah, but I only use this. They're saying it because you just worked hard. Like that's just a thing. It doesn't have to be, you don't necessarily have to win the workout to earn the, you did a great job today, um, bright spot. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. And I've, you know, I've said to people like, yeah, you know, wicked job, dude, you, you finished that workout in 19 minutes. You got out of the cap. Great job. And one person can be like, yeah, thanks. Like I did work hard and I'm so proud of finishing. And another person could have finished it in 18 minutes, but then they're thinking, yeah, but you know, Shane finished it in 14 minutes. Like it, it's, it's a slippery slope when we start not yeah. recognizing those victories. So yeah. anyway, that's the, our bright spots board at the gym and our, it's our bright spot speech. We're trying to be better at and help people, other people be better at. What is your bright spot, Jen? Well, today, or even let's start with last night. Um, we went to bed fairly early. The clock wasn't changed, so we thought it was a lot later. Um, but I got a wonderful night's sleep. I, we slept all the way till seven o'clock. I didn't have, okay, I love my dog and I, of course, let him sleep on the bed, but typically he will wake me up at some point during the night. And uh, yeah, I just got a wicked sleep and I feel great. What did we sleep? 9.30 to 7? Yeah. It's like life changing. <laughs> That's my bright spot. Your bright spot was a good night's sleep. Yeah. Okay. My <laughs> bright spot is... I'm going to start with the candle that I bought. I love this candle. I found it at the lake house in Clear Lake. Mm-hmm. I actually said to Jen, it was about two weeks ago, there's like this house on our block or a street over that they always seem to be, especially during this time, like you walk by the house and it smells like fire. It smells like campfire. Mm-hmm. Clearly they got a firewood, a wood fireplace. fire stove, fireplace. Yeah. A firewood stove. But you walk by and it smells like yes. bonfire and it's so good. I said, they should put that in a candle. I would buy that candle. Anyway, I found the candle at Lake House and it smells so good. Yes. It's called Campfire by Farmer's Sun Company. My other bright spot, I'm going to go into two, Jen, because I'm so good at recognizing bright spot. my bright spots now. <laughs> my other bright spot, and this is going to lead into our one of our main topics for today, but last week at the gym... I had a really good back squat session and I built up to a very good heavy five on the back squat and I didn't wear a belt. I was very tempted to, but I wanted to kind of see that day how heavy and how strong can I feel without just wearing a belt. And I had a very good squat day and the whole belt thing is going to be one of our topics we're going to chat about in a bit, but um I have had a lot of back issues in my life ever since I was 18. Started with a hard hit in hockey where I got twisted up in the boards. And ever since I was 18, I would injure my back once or twice every hockey season. And then usually once in the off season. 
And I just turned 35 years old. So it's actually been 17 years of me trying to figure out my back situation. It's always kind of been my Achilles heel. And yeah, I've just always had trouble with it. And just lately in the last couple of years, I've kind of reached like a new hurdle or milestone that I've passed and kind of really got a hold on, yeah, just that back injury. And and this is going to relate to actually both the talks we're going to chat about today. And I'm also very aware that it, it's possible I, you know, I could tweak it or re-injure it in the future, but I feel like I've got a good grasp on it and it's given me, um, yeah, just a new appreciation for feeling healthy and moving well and waking up in the morning without back pain. And it's, it's just like if anybody suffered from like chronic back pain or back injuries, it's just, it can be very, very, very frustrating. So my bright spot is I just had a very awesome back squat session, no pain in my back. And yeah, that's my other bright spot. Yeah, some of the heaviest, not just that you had no pain, but you're kind of, you're squatting weights that like some of the heaviest weights you've ever moved without pain um, and feeling good. So I feel like that's important part of that. Yeah. It's good to feel 35 and alive. (laughs) He's been 35 for a day. Um, Okay, let's get into our our main topics today, everybody. We're going to start, it's gear and injuries today. We're going to chat about kind of gear for weightlifting, gear for CrossFit, and kind of finish up this podcast with a little bit of a, a chat about injuries and how we feel you should deal with them so you can, yeah live your very best life and get the most out of your gym experience and workout sessions and all that stuff. So let's start with gear. Jen, what do we want to chat about first? Well, I think we want to approach this um, not just necessarily for people that are using these pieces of equipment, but just to have a general chat about what they are when we use them and when we would advocate using them um, or not. So I think the first one that pops into my head is a belt. Yeah. So if we chat about why would somebody wear a weightlifting belt? And if you've been in the gym, um, I'm assuming you know what we mean by weightlifting belt. And maybe you wear one and you don't know how to use it. Maybe you wear one, you do know how to use it, or you never worn one. And we just kind of want to go through, yeah, the ins and outs of, and the the belt is probably, we're going to chat about a couple other things, but arguably the, the belt and proper shoes could be our like two top things we want people mm-hmm. to focus on. But let's go back to the weightlifting belt. So you might have to help me out with the, the term, Jen, because I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. But when we... When we lift everybody, when we're lifting something heavy, okay, the idea is that we want to brace our core, essentially brace our core, meaning keeping a neutral spine. And then when we're moving a heavy load, um, it could be deadlifting, like picking something up from the floor or squatting heavy weight. When we're moving a heavy load, we don't want our spine to move. We want it to stay neutral. We don't want it to overarch. We don't want it to round forward. And if you don't know what neutral spine is, usually just stand tall and proud and that's neutral spine. It's like a slight curvature in your low back and upper back, but that's neutral spine and we try to brace and hold that. And the way, the best way to brace for most people is to take a big breath in, take a big breath in through your mouth and put all of that air into your belly. Okay, that's how you kind of want to visualize it going into your belly and then you brace your belly lightly like you're about to take a punch to the belly. 
So we basically brace our belly and then perform the lift. And assuming we have a really good technique, our spine curvature is not going to change. Okay, so by taking that air and embracing our belly, we've created this strong core. Your abs and all of your muscles, it's not just abs, but all of your muscles around your chest and back, lower back and upper back and belly, all of those muscles are working really hard to not let your spine move. The simplest way I've heard the belt described, the belt is like having a second pair of abs. Okay, so we kind of brace against our belly. We brace against those ab muscles and whether you can see your abs or not, your abdominals, they are there, everybody. We all have muscles in there. So sometimes people chuckle that, well, I don't have abs. I'm like, yes, you do. Just not all of us can see them and that's not important for this conversation, but your abs are working very hard to brace and when you have a belt on across your belly button, okay, that's how we should wear it right across you know, kind of the biggest part of our belly. Um, now your belly, your belly muscles have something to push against, which increases the internal pressure inside, which allows us to lift heavier weights. So again, it's almost like having a second pair of abs and they've done studies on this. Like it is, it's the reason why you'll see like Olympians in Olympic weightlifting, like, or powerlifters, like the strongest people on earth will be wearing belts. It's not a back brace. It's like a bracing, it's a belly bracing tool to allow us to lift more weight. Mm -hmm. Did I explain that? Yes. Well enough? Okay. What it is 100% not is a band-aid for lower back pain. It is not a back brace. So does a weightlifting belt allow you to lift more weight safely? I would say yes, if you know how to use it properly. If you know how to brace properly, if you know how to lift properly, it does 100% help. That's why you will see the top lifters in the world, not every single one of them, but a lot of them, you'll see strong man and strong woman competitors wearing belts is because it physically allows them to brace better and lift more weight. But that is the that is kind of the start of our conversation. And I've just said this and I'll say it again. It is not a band-aid for back pain. Okay. And, and I've been down this road where if I have back pain, like I was kind of chatting about in the bright spots that you're, you're attracted to the belt, like a moth to a flame because the, the, the belt helps with temporary relieving some back pain, but it's not a good long-term solution and it will hinder you more than it's going to help you. So if someone says, Hey, my back is sore. Like, should I go grab a belt? Our answer is going to be no, no, never. So just, you got to be careful not to fall into that way of lifting. Yes. You want to add to that? Yeah. I think just to back up a little bit when we, you know, we talk about bracing and, I think we assume like, obviously if you, if you are lifting, chances are that if you're lifting a load that is fairly heavy for you, whatever that may be, that you've done some sort of brace. So whether you know it or not, you're not just breathing, having a conversation during your back squat. Um, however, bracing on its own is sort of a skill to be mastered, meaning all of that pressure that you are generating 
we are trying to manage it in the correct way. So we don't want to be, you know, kind of blowing or pushing out when we're not wearing a belt. So I think it's important to learn how to brace correctly without the belt before we we start learning to do it with the belt because the way you do it with the belt and without are two different things. Um, I don't even know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if I, you I ever th- want to chat about how to brace, yeah. please, please chat yeah, with me went, at the I kind of went through it a little bit, <laughs> but that's a great point. Yeah. It, it's typically we don't, we definitely do not want beginners wearing belts. We'll, we'll never, we never like to allow teenagers to wear them. Um, beginners as in somebody who's been in CrossFit or strength training or weightlifting for like less than a year. Like there is a huge learning curve on learning how to brace your spine correctly and move with absolute perfect technique to learn all of that before slapping on a belt because we mm-hmm. want to lift more weight. Typically the yeah. introduction of the belt is more of an ego move than it is a performance. Like it's it's mm-hmm. like people just want to gear up so they can hit this heavy one. And it's our job as coaches to, I think, introduce it re- responsibly. Okay, so it is a case-by-case scenario. If you're involved in our gym, you should come chat with us. If you're not involved in our gym, you should reach out. But some things I like to, you know, some basic guidelines for people. is like, how long have you been doing this? And, and does someone, do they squat, do they back squat, front squat, deadlift perfectly? Because if not, the belt is irrelevant. We need to be moving perfectly first. Somewhere down the road, like I've had, it happened last week or the week before, a member asked, they've been at the gym for two years. I said, yeah, you're squatting really well. They were heading into their last set of three. Okay, so we're at a pretty heavy weight now. Last set of three, they wanted to, you know, brace up for their last set and crush this last set. And I thought it was actually a perfect opportunity to, yeah, that that belt on that last set is going to give you a little bit of a boost. It's not... It's not fake. It's real. You brace properly with your belly pushing into a tight belt. It does make you stronger in that, that squat. So other guidelines we have are kind of like that scenario is, well, A, never wear a belt all the time. You should not be belting up for warm-up sets. Your lighter sets, your working sets, like leading up to your heaviest sets, if you're wearing a belt all the time, 100%, I, I don't, I do not agree with that. I think you're doing it wrong. I think belts are to be used sparingly, so you get really good without a belt, and can also feel the benefits of with a belt. So if you are ever in those certain situations where, you know, maybe you're in a competition or something like that, then now you understand. Okay, I get to belt up for this set, and it's, you know, I'm going to brace hard, and it's going to get me through it. So typically, I know there's other coaches or athletes that follow some, we kind of create rules for ourselves. Like I only belt once a week. I only belt once a week. I don't belt seven days a week. So once a week I might choose, you know, okay, today's back squats. I might bring in the belt today, but that also means I'm not going to belt for the rest of the week. So I'm always getting almost more practice without the belt than practice with the belt. The other rule that I, I typically like from a couple of our coaches I know use it is that they, they never ever belt when the weight is below 80% of their max or 85% of their max. So if someone squats, just say someone's back squat is 400 pounds, 320 is 80%. Am I correct in saying that? 80, 160, 320. Here we go. So if someone back squats 400 pounds 
and using this coach for example they won't typically wear a belt when any of the weights are lower than 320 once they hit 320 or above they might choose to belt for like their last couple sets so i think just having some mini guidelines so you just you know you're when someone's belting for their warm-up sets and then they're belting for wall balls and they're belting for kettlebell swings it's basically a sign of they don't know how to use it or usually we're concerned because i think now they have actually a back injury mm-hmm. yeah just maybe using it for the wrong um the wrong reasons and again it it really does come down to learning how to brace properly so that you don't feel like you need it um like I, you know, obviously after coming back from having packs and I had to work hard, I'd never really thought about what I was doing to brace and never had any issues. Um, and then postpartum, I really had to retrain that system to do what I wanted and fo- spent a lot of time um, learning to brace properly, which is really sucking everything in kind of like Zach mentioned, not blowing it out into the belt because I would have had issues. So um learning to do that properly and get really confident with it, even at heavy weights, instead of just always relying on that one thing to get you to those higher percentages. Yeah. And that's another great point with pre or postpartum. If there's any injury related stuff going on, and I also consider that like pelvic floor issues is we we're going to need to practice bracing in a different way and rebuild those bracing techniques, like Jen said, rebuild those core muscles. Belting is just, it's just, that is such a, it's just such a short term solution. So again, there, there's, there's just different scenarios where it's appropriate and different scenarios where we're highly against it. I, like I said, I kind of, you know, in a given week of training, I train five or six days a week. I'm going to wear it maybe once of those days. And, and when I'm wearing it, it's not like I'm wearing it the whole workout. I'm only wearing it for one, two, or three sets, maybe. So I, I don't use it that much anymore. And again, I've, my back injuries and everything have gotten so much better because I, I almost took two years off from the belt to rebuild Mm -hmm. similar to Jen rebuilding after having a baby. Jen wears a belt like about half as much as I do. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. And she's, when, when we compare our numbers with kind of the male, female, um, ratios what am i trying to say there? yeah i think so. percentages yeah like jen is stronger in comparison so it also goes to show though that wearing a belt all the time isn't the way to always lift the most weight and get stronger it's just it's it's to be used sparingly to use be correctly and to be used only for certain people at certain times so it is very tough to us to define every situation on this podcast, but we want people to be aware of the belt can be a helpful tool, but it can also be a piece of gear that gets used way too much, gets used kind of randomly and gets used incorrectly. So yeah. I think just bringing some attention to that one. That was a long talk on belts, but yeah, I think it's important. That, that's the big one. Yeah. Um, moving on uh, this one, we see a little bit, but not as major. So uh, knee sleeves slash wrist straps. I placed them in the same category because I think they're kind of the same. And I think our main thought, it, it's not really a, I mean, some people love to wear them every day. Some people don't wear them that much. I think the key with these two is always just, uh, why are you wearing them? So if it's if you have constant knee pain or wrist pain, I think it's really important to identify why we have that pain um, instead of just sort of, 
you know, wrapping that joint tighter so that you can get through today. Um, I've also been down that road, everybody, and it's a slippery slope. Yeah. My knees get sore, so I wear knee sleeves, and then they're getting more sore, so I buy thicker, bigger (laughs) knee sleeves, and now they're more sore, and now I'm wearing knee wraps. So it's very similar to the belt, and it's just a slippery slope. And like Jen said, why are you wearing them? And if it's it's because your knees are so damn sore that you can't do an air squat that you need knee sleeves, it might be interesting or it might be helpful to address that because mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't squat super well if you tend to put a lot of weight forward in your toes and basically you're you'll become very very quad dominant which we see a lot right mm-hmm. we call them kind of ankle squatters where there's way too much weight forward you're going to have knee pain it's going to be chronic where it's going to start to appear and it's going to get worse and worse so those who don't squat super well will 100% get some sort of knee, hip, or back pain at some point. So sometimes it's it's it would be very, very helpful and fun for you, I think, to rebuild the squat. And if we get a perfect air squat with no knee sleeves, we'll eventually start to get rid of that knee pain. So I think that's the stuff we're trying to be careful of. Yeah. Same and thing I, with and, the wrist pain. Yeah, yeah, and I think the, and again, so when, you know, when would we use them? you know, say we have a workout where we have, you know, a lot of wall balls and it just, it just gives, you know, a, boost a, out of the bottom. A, a little, yeah, a little boost out of the bottom, you know, for, for myself, if I'm, I don't find the need to use a belt as often. Um, sometimes I like that little extra boost out of the bottom for a heavy squat set, um, or heavy, a heavy squat clean or something like that. So I'll, I'll throw them on sparingly. Um, I think as soon as you use something all the time, it's no longer, doesn't really add anything because your body's only used to using it. Um, for the for the wrist straps, sure, you have a workout with a you know a ton, a high volume of overhead squats. You just want a bit of extra support. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, but other, again, if you have ton of, a ton of wrist pain, it'd be inter- like, why are we getting wrist yeah. pain? To dive into that stuff. And yeah. again, if you fall into any of these categories of, of having lots of pain and you you have lots of questions, you, you need to. I I would just highly recommend you reach out to us, and we need to have a one-on-one session together and address some of these movement issues mm-hmm. and just play the long game of like, yes, it might be a little bit tough to get away from your knee sleeves for a bit, but mm-hmm. imagine in three, four or five months, you can now squat with no knee pain. And it's not like the knee sleeves are the worst, but I'm saying you would it would give you a level of strength and freedom from that from that constant nagging pain. Well, and I think I, I maybe have a different perspective than some with, with regard to pain and this stuff. And, you know, my wrist has been bothering me a little bit. And so, you know, I could go and get the wrap and wrap it up and it would probably feel better in that squat session. If I decided to uh, take an Advil or something, it might feel even better after the squat or the, you know, the snatch or whatever I was working on that was bothering it. Um, However, I choose to do neither of those things. So I personally don't like to band-aid injuries. I don't want to wrap it up and have it feel better for that hour because it's just going to make it feel better or feel worse for the next four days. Um, And it's the same reason I don't take painkillers in general because I'm not trying to band-aid anything that's going on in my body because those things, that kind of chronic pain, um, those issues aren't normal. So if you're doing that and kind of masking it every single day, like we, we need to find the root issue of what's going on. Otherwise um, it's never going to get better. 
Perfect. Let's move on. Yep. Uh, shoes. Shoes is the third one. I think we can sum this up in a minute or less. Yeah. In every sport, there is correct equipment for the sport. You wouldn't wear baseball cleats on a hockey rink. You wouldn't wear golf shoes playing baseball, and you wouldn't wear basketball shoes playing soccer. You should just have the right equipment for what you're doing. When you're starting out in your new, I started with Asics runners slash volleyball shoes when I did CrossFit. So it's not about, you don't have to run out and buy all the gear right away, but at some point, if you are committing to CrossFit or training, there's a reason why most people in your gym are wearing a style of shoe, whether it's the Reebok Nanos, the Nike Metcons, the Noble shoes, training shoes, New Balance has a, you know, Under Armour, but basically Yeah, New Balance has a minimalist shoe. Yes, yeah. we're looking for quite flat with a very low rise, so you're you're just grounded into the floor. There's not a lot of cushion. We don't want a lot of cushion. Your shoe is very stable. And that's why these shoes were invented for this CrossFit or cross training where you need to be able to jump rope. You need to be able to Olympic lift. You need to be able to box jump. You need to be able to run. You need this hybrid shoe for mm -hmm. these things. And yeah, more cushion and more support is is not the answer. They've, they've gone away from that. And essentially when you start to baby the foot, the foot becomes weak. So that's, I mean, we could do a whole podcast with Ronimal on yes, shoes, but that one should. is you need the right shoe for the activity that you are doing. And I think that's about it. If you got any questions on shoes, you should also reach out or chat with us at the gym. But there's, there's about, there's probably about six pairs of shoes that I would approve of. Um, and we have to be careful that even sometimes they come out with these Reebok shoes that are like, they're close to nanos, but they're not quite what we would wear. And I think yeah. sometimes again, if they're too much cushion and stuff, like when I can see people's feet move while they're squatting and they're, you know, they're squishier, they're kind of vibrating a bit. It's, it's just really not the best piece of equipment for that sport. Yeah. Good. And I think the the big thing that comes up, this is, well, Zach, you know, we do sometimes in workouts, we do a lot of running. So then in that workout, should I be wearing a running shoe? Personally? No, I've, and I mean, we could argue with this with other people, but I've been doing CrossFit for 10 years and I've always tried to find the very best shoe for everything. Meaning my feet do typically, they do very well in nanos and there has been years of nanos that, and I can remember this off the top of my head, the year of the nano three was bad and the year of the nano seven was bad. Just they were not great for everything they went a bit too too hard, like, or, too, hard yeah. or too flexible. But like, I can also tell you nano twos for me were fantastic. Nano fours, nano fives was okay. Nano sixes was quite good. Nano eights was amazing. Nano nines are my favorite. Nano tens were a little bit different. Nano, but I mean, I know the exact shoe when I wear it. I'm like, oh, I can skip rope and feel amazing. I can clean and jerk in the shoe and it feels awesome. I can also run in the shoe. So I've, I have always it's just a crazy attention to detail. Like I can name the shoes year by year and the colors that I bought and what I liked and didn't like, but I, you got to find that shoe that does it all. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. And I've just, when I wear my nano nines now, they do everything. I've ran three miles in a workout and skipped rope and weightlifted. And I just think there was a time where we, 
we thought the shoe had to be like so supportive and cushiony so we could run, but it's just leading to more foot problems because your feet yeah. then don't have to work. You should have feet that are like actually strong and tough enough that you don't need super cushy shoes. Yeah, so. well, and I think the cushion is one, but I think the angle of the running shoe is such that it helps you to strike with the right part of your foot. Um, so there's always that kind of lean forward. However, even with runners, I mean, if the the more cushier, the better was the standard. I mean, Olympians would be running in like moon boots yeah. um, because of the volume that they put on. But they're actually going more and more to more minimalist and they don't have issues because they run properly. Yes. Um, and we also like, where do we get this info? We have a lot of people we look up to. So I'm saying when I see the best athletes in the world, the people I look up to, these CrossFit Games athletes, I'm like, they're 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 picking they're picking one shoe for a workout. So mm-hmm. they, they don't... Especially this year because they could wear whatever shoes they wanted to at the games. Yeah. So I mean, typically if, if, if I see an athlete, okay, they're going to be doing a workout with overhead squats, skipping, running, whatever. I'm saying whatever shoe they pick is what they pick. So I'm also trying to emulate what they're doing because I always think whatever they're doing is probably the best. Like if, if I've thought about it a lot, they've probably thought about it 10 times. So it's almost like for me, it's like, what is Pat Vellner doing? And I kind of just copy him what is tia Tumi Tumi doing Mm -hmm. right i don't i don't think she's wearing super cushiony shoes in a like a well-rounded crossfit event but that's our that's our opinion on shoes uh you should also follow if you don't follow squat university on instagram you should be following squat university on instagram he's got a lot of great stuff on shoes and feet um okay let's get through this gear stuff the next one is skipping rope again i i just think Everybody should have the right gear for the sport. And I think having a your own skipping rope that is to the exact size that you need it to be, and it's the same size every time, then I'm saying that's you should have your own skipping rope for you so you can get used to it. And yeah, that's that. If you don't know how to size your skipping rope, then somebody should be able to show you. But typically I step on my skipping rope with my left foot. I pull the handles, the top of the handles should be slightly below that shoulder and that's where you start. But I just think having your own, your own is, is key. Last one. Last one on our list is grips. And we were having a great chat about this before we started the podcast today about um, Zach and why he started wearing grips because actually he never rips and has never really ripped or had an issue with ripping. Um, basically just realized that you could hang on longer with grip, but just like the belt and just like the knee sleeve, you still have to have a good technique with your grip and a strong grip. Um, otherwise you're still going to have issues even though you have these, these grips on. So yeah, typically if you're ripping, it's not your hands, it's, it's you and your grip. You, you're, you don't have the proper grip on the bar and you're rubbing a lot. And, and typically People will rip never at the beginning of a workout. People will rip in the middle or near the end, right? They're, they're fatigued. And now that they're fatigued, you know, the technique starts to slide. They're rubbing a lot, rubbing a lot. But like Jen said, I, I don't have, like, I don't work construction. I don't have like super tough man hands. I have kind of good CrossFit hands, but I've, I've, al- I've never ripped in workouts ever since I started. I'm sure I've ripped a couple times, but not weekly like some people are ripping and I don't I don't accredit it to my 
my work hands. I, it's just, I've, I've worked really hard on a good, very good gymnastics grip. And if I can explain this over a podcast, um, without it being a visual explanation that it's not me gripping the bar tighter. It's me getting my hand on top of the bar. So my wrist is actually slightly flexed forward. Okay. You can go neutral, neutral wrist. Okay. Where the back of your hand kind of lines up with your forearm, but if you flex your wrist forward two or three inches, then the back of your hand almost makes like a 45 degree angle. And that's, that's how we grip a bar. So our hands stay on top of the bar. Your fingertips are not, or your fingers are not on the bar, correct? holding the weight of your body. Yeah. And if somebody was looking from the front, they, of the, again, if you can visualize this, they wouldn't be able to see the palm of my hand, my palm, the palm of my hand is on the bar and I practiced, I mean, I've been doing, doing this for quite a long time, but just practiced not twisting my hands a lot, but just it, it's that grip that I think has allowed my hands not to rip. However, grips also do help with ripping less, mm-hmm. creating that pad there. But we've also seen people ripping with grips on. So they're still ripping and, and it, it does come down to there's just they're just not gripping the bar properly or their grip strength isn't there yet. The grip strength takes quite a while to develop the the new style of like I'm talking about this forward hand grip where mm-hmm. your palms it, on yeah, the bar. Yeah, it takes a long time to yeah. develop and but, you have to actually focus on yeah. it. But anyway, a couple of years ago, I realized like again, I, and I, I never ripped, so I never wore grips. But I started to realize that all of these top level athletes, like all of them, literally every single one in the games were wearing grips. And I started to think that, okay, they all, they all can't be wearing them just because they're ripping. And I know they do high volume and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pull-ups, but I thought there's got to be something to it. And after talking to a few people, again, some pretty high level athletes that I respect is that I said, you know, do you wear grips all the time? And I mean, they said, you know, not all the time, but generally they wear them quite a bit because it, it allows them to stay on the bar longer. So it's essentially enhancing the grip on the bar. They're not wearing them just for the ripping factor. They're wearing them because they can increase their number of pull-ups or toes to bar because they're locked in on the bar properly. And I think people need to know that because I think people, a lot of times we're getting grips and we're not wearing them properly, not using them properly. And they're still kind of not doing their job. They may stop, they might stop some of the ripping, but when you learn how to use grips properly and use how to, you know, how to use grips with that grip technique that I was explaining about, it's like a total game changer where for me, hang on for 20 pull-ups used to be kind of tough. I mean, now I, it, it, I can hang on for like, it's almost doubled my ability to hang on the bar because my hands are locked in so much on that bar. The pressure is yeah, now being put on your wrist. Yes, like, not my hand there. and finger. So yeah. anyway, that, that's our explanation on grips is that I am a huge fan of grips. It does help people rip less, but it also enhances the ability to stay up on the pull-up bar longer. And yeah. We do have to learn how to use them properly, which is essentially... And then continue to work on yeah. using them with proper grip. Yeah. And the best we can explain right now on this podcast is getting people to stop finger gripping the bar and, and palm gripping it with that forward hand. And if you need help with us, please reach out. That's the end of our gear talk, everybody. I think that went longer than we thought, but we did have, I think, some fun explaining that stuff. 
Yeah, I think the other thing we wanted to chat about today, um, and this is just going to be brief because, I mean, we are not going to get into the nuts and bolts of every single injury that could possibly occur, but just some thoughts on on injuries in general. And again, I guess what we have seen over the last 10, 12 years of being in a fairly intense sport, um, you know, dealing with injuries, seeing injuries, seeing people recover from injuries, working with professionals, um, just that, that kind of roadmap that seems to, uh, well, we think it's the best. (laughs) Um, so I think first of all, there's a big difference between, um, like an acute injury versus a chronic injury. So acute means, you know, the exact moment where you got injured. So if you got hit by a car, that would be an acute injury because you're like, yeah, okay, yesterday at 2.30, I got nailed by that car. That's why my leg is broken, right? So that's an acute injury. You went for a box jump, tripped, and sprained your wrist. That's an acute injury. You know like something happened in a specific moment in time that led to that injury. So that's an acute injury. Chronic injury is you don't really know how it came about. Your knee's like quite sore now. It's been sore for a couple of weeks. You don't really know when it started or what's been causing it. That happens quite a bit. I think that's very common yeah. for people. My back pain is chronic because it's not like I get hit by cars weekly or monthly. Hardly never, actually. <laughs> um, my back pain would just start kind of to... It maybe sh- started as an acute injury. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But then for most people, it, it kind of starts to flare up slowly and it might go away and we don't really know maybe why. So chronic injuries are like super common. Um, the different, why do you need to know the difference between acute and chronic? I'm not sure. I just wanted to explain that because I think there is a difference as far as Mm -hmm. the recovery plan. Mm -hmm. And that's usually the first question I ask people. Like, do we know, you know, is my, my wrist sore because I caught a bad clean? Like yesterday on the third clean, I caught it bad and, and, and tweaked it, right? So that's an, that would be okay, an acute injury. So probably that exact clean might have sprained your wrist, might have um, you know strained a tendon. It that exact clean might have done it. Okay, if they don't know, then it, it's probably just a slow buildup of poor gripping, too too many days of working out, not using hook grip. Okay, so then there's some other things we can we can look at there, but we do like to know kind of okay, acute or chronic to kind of get things going and yeah. How do we, how do we address them from there? So I think, I mean, you said this perfectly today is that the first step is really identifying. Well, first of all, doing absolutely nothing is never the answer. Yeah. We want, I think we've said that before and I really want to say it again. Here's that. The most common thing we hear is rest and ice. And those two are the worst. Those two are the worst. And you need to hear this and you need to pass it on. Rest and ice are the two worst things you could do. All you're doing is delaying your own recovery. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to be better in two weeks. I don't know why anyone would choose things to be better in six weeks. Like you might as well just get started. So doing nothing taking a week or two weeks or a month off is just, it's never been proven to help. It's, it's, it's like, it's now backed by science that mm-hmm. rest and ice are just, it's just delaying your own recovery. It seems like a great idea because 
when we're moving around, we can feel, oh, my low back is stiff, you know, maybe I should go lay down. And if we lay down and put ice on it, it's a temporary fix. I was like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. that feels better. I'm, but it's still delaying the recovery. You've just, you've just made yourself feel better for those, whatever, 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. So if you are resting and icing, I don't care who you heard it from. It is wrong. And we, we, um, this info is coming out more and more now, but it's still very common practice to, I'm just going to take two weeks off and ice it. And it just, you know, for us, that's like nails on a chalkboard cringe worthy. It's just, we're like, Oh, it's, it's really going to slow down your, your recovery. So, um, actually the, if you do the complete opposite, that is what we need to do. We need to use heat to increase blood flow and we need to move. We just have to be smart with our movement and smart with our recovery. And let, let's get into that now, but I think you want to read a post from. Yeah. So, uh, there's a post it's on squat university. It kind of just, it reminded me about this topic and how important it is and that it's still not super widely known, but, uh, they had a post about movement and heat after, after an injury. Um, and so he said here, this is why Dr. Gabe Mirkin, the man who invited the right, uh, sorry, invented the rice protocol, which is right. Rest, ice, compression, compression elevation. and elevation. Yeah. Um, he actually came out in 2013 and withdrew his original statement. And we've talked about this already. Like so again, he, he took it back. Yeah, The, the guy <laughs> who invented rice is now saying it's yeah. wrong. So anybody who's saying it's right is like the guy himself has like retracted it. Yes. So he, there's a quote here. Subsequent research shows that ice can actually delay recovery. Mild movement helps tissue heal faster and the application of cold suppresses the immune responses that start and hasten recovery. Icing does help suppress pain, but athletes are usually far more interested in returning as quickly as possible to the playing field. So today, rice is not the preferred method of treatment for an acute athletic injury. So there's like a million scenarios we can go through, but there's just, there's just one kind of common practice that we use and that very smart health practitioners use. And again, if, if they're recommending rest and ice, I would just encourage you to go elsewhere. Um, that's just, that's just not the advice that we listen to anymore. So the common practice that we're going to use is it's kind of the same as strength training. It's progressive overload and it's recognizing the movements. And that's the first question I'll also ask people, or maybe the second question, but what movements give it the most trouble? because it's good to identify those movements. So one of the most common things we hear is let's just talk about low back pain. Low back pain is crazy common. So, okay, so what movements bug it? And usually the answer, well, deadlifts. Okay. So if you can identify the movements that bug it the most, okay, maybe it's a shoulder injury and going overhead is the one that bugs it the most. Once we identify the movements that bug it the most, we actually need to not avoid those movements, but hone in on them. Because those are the exact movements. The movements that cause the most pain in most situations are also the movement patterns that we need to work on. But we have to be smart in that if someone says, yeah, I always get back pain with deadlifts. Okay, well, we're not going to deadlift heavy. And maybe we're not going to deadlift with full range of motion. But now in my head, okay, it, it's triggered an alarm bell that hip hinging, so leaning forward causes the pain. So we actually need to come up with movements similar to that 
to start the recovery plan. Okay. So my, my best example is, is even myself is that deadlifts have always been my kryptonite causes me the most pain. I'm weak in that movement. It was only a few years ago where I started to like take my own advice, but okay, like I actually need to work on my deadlift to fix this problem. So someone with a lot of back pain, I'm going to, I'm going to give them, you know, the lightest weight. And if they can deadlift five pounds and not even to the ground, let's just say five pounds, like to knee height or shin height, can they, you know, lean forward with a flat back, touch that weight to that knee height object and then stand back up, right? Almost like so ridiculously light that they almost like roll their eyes. But if you can get no pain there, then that's where you start. And you slowly, slowly, slowly increase the range of motion and increase the load until it kind of, you know, it might take, it might take six months. It might take a year, but that essentially is the start of the recovery plan. And I've seen people do it in the gym lots where, I mean, Ian at our gym is one of the best examples. He had, you know, some knee surgery and he almost misses, like, I don't even know if he misses a week at the gym. Like he can barely like walk properly, but he's already started on his recovery of sitting to a very high object. So not a full squat, maybe a quarter squat and standing. And he's just using his body weight. But over time, over three, four, five months, of just slowly building range of motion and slowly building the weight back up. Yeah. And the capacity of the knee to do different yes. things yeah. un- unloaded. Yeah. So what can we do today to have minimal pain? I would say mild discomfort, but it actually feels pretty good as we go along. And again, we're talking about very, very lightweights. Um, again, if we use the example of shoulder pain and going overhead, can someone take a marker or a pencil and just kind of start to push overhead. And you can, you know, you could just start there. Like it's so light, it's not going to cause more damage. We might start to loosen up that joint. And basically we want to do things that very, very mild discomfort, like a one out of, or one or two out of 10. And then also evaluate how does it feel the next day? Because if the next day it feels the same, that's awesome. If it feels way worse, okay, we did too much. But if the next day feels the same, then we're on to something because now we can, okay, we can do it again. So it is actually starting to increase the strength, the range of motion, and it's not making it worse. If it's not making it worse, it's going to get better. And then eventually week by week, it'll be, Hey, I'm wow. I'm actually starting to feel better. I can put my hand, you know, all the way above my head. I can, I was lifting the pencil. Now I'm lifting two pencils. Now I'm lifting the three pound dumbbell. And that is the way to approach injuries. And that is how everybody is doing it. It's just, it's not sitting around and waiting. Yeah. And I think the, the important piece is that sometimes, um, you know, we'll have people, they go see, um, a physio, you know, they have some, maybe some exercises to get that joint moving, to work on stabilizer muscles around it. And I mean, those things are great. However, when you finish those, those, you know, rounds of exercises or whatever it means, it doesn't mean that you're ready to go back to the 200 pound deadlift. So Often we, and I think probably it's our egos a little bit, and just because we have fun lifting weights, we want to get back to what we were doing. But there's a whole bunch of weights in between there that need to be lifted, and not just in strength, 
in strength sessions, but also in conditioning movements. So far too often what happens is that we'll do this rehab, we'll get it feeling kind of good again, and then we'll we'll jump right back to, um, we'll go from the pencil back to the 65 pound push press, because that's what the RX weight is in the workout, and you know technically you can do it. But whether it's it's either your movement pattern, so something in the way that you're moving, and big ones are squat and deadlift, something there is not 100% correct. So, you know, working with a coach for the hour could be very helpful in really breaking down those movements and filming and trying to see where that breakdown is happening. Um, yeah, but- and we're very excited to be able to start offering that at our gym as like a new service. Mm-hmm. So we're offering one-on-ones now, two-on-ones, three-on-ones, like these small group sessions to really, really identify these these movement faults and start to correct them. So essentially help with some of these injuries or just prevent them, mm-hmm. rehab or prehab. And I just want to touch on what Jen said there that, you know, you can't really take this advice and just go hog wild, like, because there's a lot of stuff we're missing. But again, going back to the deadlift, if we're trying to kind of get somebody to move better and get their back feeling better with one of these movements, again, there might be four or five different movements that we use, but the deadlift is one of the best ones. If we put them into a conditioning workout and let's say the conditioning workout calls for 80 deadlifts, there's actually a very good chance. I'm going to say, Hey Bob, you did a really good job today on the strength session. You know, we kind of use that for rehab in the workout today. We're just going to bike. So we're not going to put them in a situation where they're now trying to like rehab their back and get a conditioning workout in at the same yeah, time. Yeah, go as fast as they can. Yes. So I use this method quite a bit where, bef- you know, in, in a strength session, I'm doing some rehab stuff, working on my deadlift at a very light weight. And then in the workout, it's about, okay, how can I get a really wicked workout without now I'm not, so now I'm going to probably avoid some things that would trigger my back. So I'm, I'm not avoiding the movements altogether, but I am avoiding them when I'm trying to go fast and get your heart. Exactly. Rate. I'm yeah. trying to work on my conditioning. I'm like, Hey, like the assault bike is just a great one. You're just sitting on a bike. You can get your legs, you can get your conditioning going. So there is a line there as well as we're not, we're not saying, Hey, like take this really light deadlift and then go really fast. We're not doing that with people. We're just this, the rehab and prehab stuff is happening outside of conditioning workouts. Yes, absolutely. And so yeah, a couple of things there. It's it's slow. It's going to take time to reset movement patterns. Um, we're not doing it in conditioning. And then we still see that progressive o- overload. Often in, with deadlifts, as the example, we have to get them off of the ground to start because it's usually that very bottom position that isn't great. So that means that before we can go back to a 250 pound deadlift, you have to be able to do it off of some plates but then you got to go back to like 55 pounds off of the ground. Like it's yeah, reduce that, the weight that progressive and reduce overload the of, of, and I mean, I think the greatest example of progressive overload is just when people get back into sport postpartum, because you can't just go from zero to a 20 inch box. It's, it's zero, a 45 inch plate. Okay. Two 45 inch plates. Okay. Now it's the 16 inch box. There's that, those steps that you're going to follow. And it should be like that for every single um, acute or chronic injury. It's just that sometimes our ego and us just wanting to have fun and participate the way that we know that we can takes over. And unfortunately that just puts us at more risk to, uh, you know, kind of re-injure and be refrustrated by this same, yeah, the same chronic issue that's bothering us. Yeah. 
Um, you said some really good things I, I just want to touch on. The first one is um, approaching this recovery like a dimmer switch. I think Jen said a lot of people were guilty of it too. We approach it like a light switch, like we're off and then we're back on. So, hey, my back's kind of sore this week, so I'll do nothing. And then next week, oh, my back's feeling pretty good. I'm going to max out my back squat, right? And that's the issue. We go on, off, on, off, on, off. We're not feeling good, so we're, we're going to you know do nothing. Hey, we're feeling good. We're going to max it out. And we just say like, put the dimmer switch all the way down and just slowly turn it back on. You'll get stronger than ever before. And you're going to, when you get to that point again, your body's going to be ready and built back up. And it might take three, four, five, six months. But when you get there, your body is going to be so much more resilient to re-injuring that joint. And that's what we want. We want to get back to a place where we're not going to injure it again. Yeah. Well, the reality is your yes. weak spot in your body is you're going to have a tweak there again. That's where it's going to happen because that's probably just your spot in your body, as you've mentioned. The last thing I want to say too was just, we said like no resting ever, okay? The only thing that if, like if you, there's these situations where if you break your leg, you know, we've had members break their arm, break their wrist. If you, I mean, if I have a broken leg and I'm in a cast, I'm clearly resting that leg. Like we're not pulling you into the gym and trying to- Cut off your cast. Yeah, (laughs) how do we get this person squatting on this broken leg? No, that, that leg is resting for a while. However, I don't think, I don't think your whole body should rest. Let's get you doing, I've seen people in a boot do one arm, or sorry, one leg rowing. I've seen people in a boot work on their pull-ups. I've seen people in a boot work on their upper body, you know, bench press, strict press. So again, or I, the reverse, I don't agree with the total rest. Yeah. I agree with, okay, what can we do safely? Yeah. And what can we do to recover that, you know, start the recovery on that injured area? However, when we, when we have a very intense acute injury, like a broken leg, a broken arm, uh, knee replacement surgery, I'm like, of course there's, there's times to, that would be a time to rest. But when we can move safely, it's time to move safely. Yeah. We good there? Yes. I think we could probably talk for about seven hours on, uh, injuries and inflammation in the body and yeah we hope this uh, was helpful everybody yeah. i think it was a lot we we wanted to keep this one short and clearly we went way over but i i think we get going on these topics and really enjoy them and we try to put out as much helpful info as possible so everyone gets the most out of these podcasts so we hope there was something in there for you today and like always if anything was slightly confusing like if anything kind of hit an alarm bell in your head don't you know don't be mad at us don't be mad at yourself we're trying to help and if there was something in there that kind of triggered something or made you excited like we just we really encourage you to reach out to us you can find our you know our phone numbers and emails on our website um, in our instagram and let's let's book a session and let's get you moving and let's you know let's get you stronger healthier and happier you got it (laughs) all right thank you everybody have a good night thanks again for joining us for another episode we want to give a quick shout out to the artist Quixotic for letting us use this awesome music. Our goal with this podcast is to help as many people as possible. So if you were enjoying it, then don't forget to leave us a rating, a review, and share it with your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, stay strong, stay healthy, and stay happy.